Reunion Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10 to 16, and Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, was presented by Jack Crabtree on August 3, 2015, at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute, Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. The following recording was made in a classroom setting, and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. Okay, there are two handouts. Okay, I'm not going to go over everything in these handouts. I'll let you peruse that. I'm going to be brief. A lot of those handouts overlap with stuff that Ron has already covered, and I agree with him. I'm just going to point out some couple places where I might have slight disagreements and other places where I want to amplify something of what Ron said. Otherwise, I'm fundamentally in agreement with how Ron takes these passages. I would not be nearly as charitable toward the alternative as Ron was. It seems to me that if we did not have the Gospel of Matthew, or if Matthew had not said, and these things happen so that it might be fulfilled, a virgin will bear a child, and so on, if he had not quoted that, if all we had to do with Isaiah, none of us would ever have taken Isaiah 7 to be a prediction of the Messiah. That's what I submit. That I just think it's really straightforward. Isaiah 7 is about a child, I think, the, the son of Isaiah, by a young wife that Isaiah has that God instructed him to name Emmanuel, as a message to Israel, all of Isaiah's children are like these little billboards walking through Jerusalem. And there's this message in the face of the people of Judah. Every time you think of who, what his name is, that's a prophetic message that God has given them through the, the prophet Isaiah. I think Emmanuel is no exception. That's exactly what Emmanuel is. So these interpreters who take it to be a prediction of the virgin birth of Jesus I think their arguments are quite tendentious, and the only reason they go there is because they have misunderstood Matthew. They think Matthew is saying that Isaiah predicted the virgin birth of Jesus, and therefore they're trying to find a way to make Isaiah actually say that. So I'd be less charitable than Ron on that point. Now, given that, what is the message? God with us. I want to elaborate on that a little bit more. The message as Matthew sees it and the significance of Jesus as Matthew sees it is more Jewish and less Christian than I have ever taken it to be. And I think that's the key to understanding what Matthew is doing. God with us, something like God is for us, that is, what's the opposite of God being with us? Either he's against us or he has forsaken us. And that if God is not with us, then he has somehow abandoned us, forsaken us. And what would it mean to forsake Israel at that point in time? It would mean that everything that he's promised them the destiny that he's promised them is out the window. God's no longer interested, has no intention of keeping the promises that he made to them. Well, what are those promises? I agree with Ron. They center in the Davidic covenant. God said to David, I'm going to establish your throne. I'm going to create a household. I'm going to establish your throne 
in perpetuity, forever, an eternal kingdom. Now, we know when we fill out the prophetic picture from the other prophets, there are really two aspects to that. One aspect of that is the eternal kingdom of God beyond the new heavens and the new earth when everything has been recreated and we're no longer in history. We're beyond history. That's going to be part of the fulfillment of that because Jesus is going to reign as king over the eternal kingdom of God in that sense. But we also know that there's another aspect to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and that is inside of history, in history as we know it, God has every intention of establishing his Messiah, Jesus, as king over Israel in the land and Various promises go with that, protecting them from their enemies. He will reign in righteousness over a righteous people, and so on and so forth. That, I think, is the part that Matthew is centering on. We go back to Ahaz. Ahaz, the son of David, sitting in the throne of David in Israel, and all of a sudden, he's got the northern kingdom and Aram prepared to kill him, dethrone him in any case, banish him, take the throne away from the son of David and give it to Tabeel, somebody, some other good dude, give the throne away to somebody else, and you have the Assyrians on the horizon. Everything about what God has promised through the Davidic covenant is threatened. This may not actually come to pass. If we look at the storm clouds on the horizon, maybe the enemies of God could sweep in here and make it impossible for the Davidic covenant to be fulfilled. Now, Isaiah is giving Ahaz a certain kind of sign. Ahaz is thinking something entirely different, I suspect. Ahaz is only CYA. He only wants to cover his own behind. He's only concerned about himself. He's not a believer. He's not a godly man. We have no indication that he was a particularly godly king. He could care less whether the Davidic covenant is kept. But God cares. And so notice the disconnect. This, this message of comfort that's not very comforting. It's not very comforting to Ahaz. Ahaz, uh, they're gonna, the Assyrians are going to come along and devastate your kingdom and, and almost take Jerusalem, almost destroy you completely. That's not exactly good news. So from Ahaz's perspective, this sign isn't worth too much to him. But from God's perspective, it's worth everything. And from the perspective of any believing Jew of the time, this is the whole point. Is God or is God not going to keep the promises that he made originally to Abraham and then reiterated in the Davidic covenant with David? Is God going to do that or not? Or is what we're seeing on the horizon an indication that God's promises are going to fail? So the message to Ahaz at the time is God's messages are not going to fail. So... The day is going to come in history, God's Messiah will sit on the throne in Jerusalem, reigning over the people of Israel in the land that he promised them. That day is going to come. And Emmanuel, the billboard, is saying just that to Ahaz and anyone who will listen. Matthew, I think, gets that. So when Jesus is born, in what sense, if Emmanuel was a sign of that promise with a small s, Jesus is a sign of that promise with a big S. But I would argue he's still a sign. And that's where I would have a slight quibble with Ron was saying he's the substance. Obviously, he's the substance of a lot of things, but not of the promise that is being made. Because Jesus being born does not establish the kingdom that is going to be established in history. Not yet. 
It hasn't even happened to this day. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. But is it going to happen? Well, the fact that the king who's going to reign in that kingdom has now come into existence and been born, that's a pretty good indication. It's a sign, a magnificent sign, that that promise is actually going to be kept when God gets around to it at the particular time in history when he's interested in bringing it to pass. So I think that's what Matthew is seeing and and is trying to describe to us. Another, I'm not as convinced as Ron is about what Matthew is doing with the resemblances. I don't think there's any resemblance really between Mary, the virgin, who truly is a virgin, and the young wife of Isaiah, who's not a virgin. She's a young wife who conceives and bears a child and, and notice there's nothing miraculous about the birth of Emmanuel, that he's a sign only in the sense that a billboard is a sign. He's a sign only in the sense that he's the bearer of a message. That's what it means that he's a sign. So there's nothing miraculous that happens there. So there's really no connection between the birth of Jesus, which is a miracle, a complete and total miracle that she would conceive while she was a virgin. No miracle in Isaiah 7. I think if instead of a child named Emmanuel, if God had instructed Isaiah, kind of like he did Habakkuk, take a tablet and set it up in the middle of the city and write on the tablet, Emmanuel. And that is my message to Ahaz, and that's my message to the house of David, and that's my message to Israel. Could Matthew just as easily and just as well have said, all these happened that what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. You shall take a tablet and write on the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I think so. I don't see how it couldn't work because the logic of what he's saying has everything to do with the name and the meaning of the name, and that's it. It could very well be, and this is in direction of what Ron is thinking, it could very well be that what triggered the connection in Matthew's mind, there was a young woman who had a child named Emmanuel in Isaiah 7, and now this young woman is giving birth to the Messiah himself. Maybe there's some kind of connection there that heuristically, you know what I mean by heuristically, it caused Matthew to discover the connection or to notice the connection. That may very well be, but it's not exegetically significant. It doesn't change the meaning of it. If that were a tablet, it wouldn't mean anything different than it being a child named a son, named Emmanuel. Okay, let me pause for any questions you might have on any of that before I... So you're thinking the word sign more like billboards. I'm a little confused because when Isaiah asks Ahaz to ask for a sign, he's not asking Ahaz to ask for a billboard. He's asking Ahaz to ask for some indication that God is faithful or something like that. So a billboard is not an indication that God is faithful. There must be something else that is an indication that God is faithful. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Could you repeat that? So when Isaiah Ahaz asks for a sign, make it as high as the heavens of deepest Sheol, isn't he asking, now arguing as well, isn't he asking for something supernatural? Well, he's allowing Ahaz to ask for some indication that God is on his side, maybe? Right. That's the implication. Right. Okay, some indication, yeah. Well, the indication is God's word. So he gives him a sign, name this child Emmanuel, that's my message to Ahaz, my word is that I'm on your side, you'll be okay. The Hebrew word out there is used in Genesis, for example, the sun in the sky and the moon in the sign are the signs for the season, is the out. What was the other usage I noticed? That might be in my notes there. Um, Oh yeah, circumcision is the out 
of the covenant between God and Abraham, the sign. There's nothing. It's just some kind of concrete, tangible thing that conveys a message. Ahaz misunderstood Isaiah's request because Ahaz says, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. If he was saying that, then he's assuming that Isaiah is offering him an opportunity for some sort of, I don't know, more more than just a billboard or something like that. I, I just don't see how a billboard fits into the way Ahaz... Oh, I, I see what you're asking. Yeah, you'd have to rewrite the account a little bit more to make it a billboard. But... It may very well be that Ahaz, I'm not exactly sure what he means by, I don't want to put Yahweh to the test, I agree with Ron. I think that's just pious nonsense on the part of Ahaz. The guy doesn't believe. He's not interested in not testing God. That's not his heart. So I think that's just false piety on the part of Ahaz. And that's why Isaiah responds the way he does, kind of with a, by scolding him, because, come on, Ahaz, give me a break. But Ahaz may very well have in mind that the sign could be something spectacular, dramatic, supernatural, whatever he could. But the word doesn't require that. And so when he says, well, God is going to give you a sign, something as mundane as a kid with a name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's not just talking about either a big bill or a little bill. Right. Yeah, ask for whatever you want that will, but what's going to be attached to it is the message. And I think the, the message that was going to be attached to it is the same message that was attached to Emmanuel in whatever form Ahaz asked it to come in. And notice, of all the things Matthew does after he quotes the Isaiah passage, he translates Emmanuel. He translates it and says, which means God with us. Why? Because well, that's what's critical. That's the part you need to understand if you're going to understand the connection between Isaiah 7 and the birth of Jesus is what does Matthew see that they share in common? What he sees that they share in common is they bear the same message. God is going to do what he said he's going to do, and he's not going to be thwarted. In the case of Emmanuel, just through his word as plastered on the billboard of the sun, in Jesus, through the actual birth of the actual king who's actually going to sit on the throne when the time comes. That's a pretty clear indication that God's serious about fulfilling this promise. You were mentioning the idea of a heuristic connection rather than a direct connection. The heuristic type connection, couldn't that be the result of a literary artistic device on the part of God? Yeah, yeah. Pick them up because you go, oh, wait a minute, look, I'm seeing something similar. Let me look at them close. Yeah. And then you go, wow, that's a piece of literature, and then it ties it up. Yeah. That's kind of where my brain wants to go with it, is that there's some kind of artistic sort of thing that God is doing there. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a great, and, and I think we'll probably have time to talk more and more about that. I used to not think so back when I think I understood the Bible a lot less than I do now, but what you say is exactly right. If what God is creating is a narrative, then anything that's available to a creator of narrative is available and legitimate to be used by God. And does a narrator sometimes plant things early in a story that anticipate things later in the story? I think so. I mean, I think I've read two fiction things in my whole life, but... A plus B equals C connections, they're more of a ringing... Yes. ...artistic ringing connection. Yes, exactly. So, is that possible? Yes. But here's the caution that I want to reserve for that. The thing that bugged me about high school English classes are these literature teachers who would find all kinds of connections in the novels we were reading. And I'd go, really? (laughs) I mean, 
what I don't know is whose creativity is at work here, the author of the novel or you, the English teacher. And that's going to be always the problem that we have to wrestle with is, yes, I'm seeing this connection between something in the New Testament and something in the Old Testament. Did God put that there in order for me to see it? Or we're also creative. Am I creating that and making junk up? And the first is obviously a possibility that we have to take seriously, that God has created this resonance between some earlier event and some later event. But I think we need to be careful and cautious that we don't go hog wild and just use our own imagination and then and say, God put it there. And the other thing that's important to see is, even when you do have that kind of resonance, it's not exegetically significant. It's artistic, it's creative, And what I mean by exegetically, I mean, it doesn't help me answer the interpretive questions, but it does make the connections richer in a kind of way that gives substance to it that it doesn't otherwise have. I grant that. I think that's true. But I don't need to see that connection to know what the passage in the New Testament means, and I don't need that connection to know what the passage in the Old Testament means. They stand alone. And then if I see a comparison, then I go, wow, I'll bet you God intended that. That's fine. Notice, you can't see a connection between two things that you don't understand. You have to understand them first before you can see a connection. That's what I mean by it's not exegetically useful. Because I need to know what this is before I know whether it's an echo of that and vice versa. Okay, let me, uh, well, any other questions on that? Yeah. Sort of related to what Chris was saying, uh, asking about the billboard. You left out, I feel like you've left out the part where... um, that it's a sign that he will be Emmanuel, but also that by the time he has reached a certain age, all these things will have come to pass, and like you won't have those enemies anymore. And so it seems like it's more than just a sort of builder, but it's also a prediction, and it's building. Oh, no, absolutely, yeah. No, I, I'm not saying that Isaiah would work with it being a billboard. I'm saying that had Isaiah been written differently, and didn't have all that stuff about an actual time marker to Ahaz and all that stuff, and all he said is put a billboard in this city that says this, Matthew could have still said Jesus is the fulfillment of that. That was the point I was making. But yeah, no, Isaiah doesn't work unless it's a son that is at a certain age that he can use as that time marker. Just the name, Emmanuel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't think that stuff is relevant to what Matthew is doing. Okay? Now, but notice what Matthew is doing makes absolutely no sense outside the larger context, much larger context, of the whole set of God's promises to Israel through Abraham, through David, and so on. If you don't know that stuff, there's no way you can have any idea what Matthew is doing. So, okay, that's what I was going to say. So notice, that's what I mean by it's a much more Jewish promise. What do we Gentile Christians do with that? God with us. We do two things with it. There's the incarnation. Look at Jesus, and that's actually God there, and he's only three meters away from me right now. We do that, that we take God with us to be local. Notice I haven't taken it to be describing a location. It's a disposition on the part of God. I am committed to keeping my promises. I have not abandoned you. I have not forsaken you. I have not turned hostile on you. I am not now antagonistic toward you. I'm still with you. So that's not spatial. So the incarnation, seeing that as a prediction of the incarnation makes no sense, if I'm right about what God with us means. And then the second thing we do with that is we connect it with the other thing that is said in that passage. You will call his name 
Yeshua, for he will, God will save us from our sins. Does Emmanuel mean the same thing? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's God with us is not, here is the one who's coming into the world to save us and solve the problem, the wrath of God toward human sinfulness. Does Jesus do that? Absolutely. Is that what Matthew's talking about? I don't think so. I think what Matthew is saying is, much like you have in the early part of Luke, if you've ever looked at the early part of Luke, the prophecies of Zechariah, the comments of Mary, the predictions of the angels there are all about how this child being born is the one who is going to be the king of Israel. And what is he talking about? Is he talking about some eternal kingdom of God beyond history that God is going to rule in? Not there, I don't think. I think what he's talking about is we've been anticipating that that the son of David would come and rule over Israel here in the land, in Jerusalem, prosperous in the land, etc., etc. That's what we've been anticipating. Well, this child that's being born today, he would be the one who's going to pull that off. He's the one that's going to do that. So I think Matthew's doing the same thing. You'll call him Yeshua because he will save you from your sins. That's a broader promise, and that includes Gentiles, and that includes the whole world. I mean, that's the most important promise of all. But this same child born of this woman is also the one who's going to fulfill the promise that Isaiah 7 was talking about. That's how I would see it. So then it sounds like to really get it, you have to read it with Matthew's perspective to and for Jews, and, right? I think so. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think so. Probably. At least to me, it seemed like Isaiah, that the name Jesus could have more significance, the fact that they're coupled together there, Emmanuel and Jesus, even more than just fulfilling the promise of the kingdom, because there's a reason Matthew put those together. I mean, in a sense, the Emmanuel in Isaiah was given as a sign, as a media sign, that God was going to save his people. And that Matthew is kind of, that that's part of why he's referring to that passage. Here, he goes out of his way to say, you're going to call his name Jesus. And Jesus means God saves. And then God is with us shows that God couples it together as God is going to so I guess my question to you, because I do think there's a connection there. and Between Jesus and Emmanuel. Between Jesus as the one who's going to save us from our sins and Emmanuel, God, with us. Sure. So how do you see, and I do believe that God's going to keep his promises about kingdom, but how do you see salvation from sins as fitting, how are you seeing that fitting in with Because salvation from sin is a prerequisite to all of God's promises. When you get to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, what is he promising? I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. How does he end that? I will remember their sins no more, which is a big, huge deal in the book of Hebrews when he deals with that. That God cannot keep his promise to his own people, Israel, without forgiving them for their sins. So we Gentiles are forgiven for our sins for the sake of an eternal destiny and eternal life, but God's own people, Israel, are going to be forgiven for their sins in order to keep his promises to the the very concrete, tangible, this history promises about setting up the kingdom in Israel. He will forgive their sins in order to do that. So, yeah, I think they're intimately connected with each other. And Matthew is purposely putting them together? Yeah, possibly so. Yeah, I haven't thought about that, but that would make sense. Okay. 
Now, what's at stake here? If I can shift gears for a little bit. What's at stake here? And I have this on in your handout, the New Testament use of Hebrew Scripture, three issues. I would like to go over those if I could. It's point number two. What are the stakes? What's at stake here? What is at stake with respect to how we understand the relation of a Hebrew text to its use by a New Testament author? What I would argue is what's at stake is the credibility of the New Testament author, the credibility of the scriptures, therefore, and ultimately the credibility of the gospel message itself. Its credibility is at stake. And here's what I mean by that. A New Testament author, in this case Matthew, is making a claim about the meaning and significance of a text of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, in this case, I don't think he's making a claim about the meaning of it. He's making a claim about the significance of it. Because what he wants to say is that claim, I guess what he's making a claim about is the significance of Jesus' birth in the light of Isaiah 7. Upon what is the New Testament author's claim based? How is he getting this? Where is he coming from? Why is he saying this? Where does he get off saying that here's who Jesus is? It would appear that the New Testament author is appealing to the authority of the Hebrew scripture. Why else would he say all these things happened that that which is spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, why is he bringing Isaiah up at all unless he's in some sense appealing to the authoritative Hebrew scriptures as some kind of basis upon which he's going to make a claim about Jesus? So he's appealing to the authority of the Hebrew scriptures. Is his claim based on a rational and valid reading of those scriptures? Or... Is it based on a contrived, artificial, and fallacious reading of those scriptures? Is he making this up? Is he taking merely verbal resemblances and saying, ah, that's good enough, I'll say this is about that? Or accidental coincidences between texts and events and making a big deal out of that? If so, doesn't your rational mind say, you're playing fast and loose here, this is cheating? And yet, he claims to be appealing to the authority of Isaiah in order to ground his point about the significance of Jesus. Well, if what Matthew is doing is the former, it's a rational and valid reading of the scriptures, then my acceptance of the New Testament author's claim is supported, reinforced, and encouraged by the fact that he's making a claim that's congruent with the scriptures, what they actually claim and what they actually teach. But if it's the latter if it's contrived, artificial, strained, then my acceptance of the New Testament author's claim is completely and utterly dependent upon that New Testament author's personal credibility and personal authority. I have to accept it on Matthew's word because I don't have Isaiah backing him up any longer. You see what I'm saying? So I have to accept it on Matthew's word. But then I'm going to have to grant personal credibility and authority to the very person who in in the face of the empirical evidence of his lack of credibility. This guy doesn't even know how to read, and I'm going to trust him to interpret the significance of Jesus' birth? Why would I do that? I could arbitrarily decide, yeah, but Matthew doesn't get anything wrong. But then that's arbitrary. And where is my intellectual integrity? You know, believe me? (laughs) Arbitrarily trust me? Why would we arbitrarily trust Matthew? We shouldn't arbitrarily trust Matthew. We should trust him because he's trustworthy. And one of the ways we know he's trustworthy is because look what a profound grasp of God's promises to Israel he had and how he saw clearly a connection that really was there between a message that God sent to Ahaz and the message he's sending to everybody else through the birth of Jesus. That's profound. 
It's valid. It's rational. It makes sense. And so his own credibility is supported by that. But if I find him making junk up and giving a completely artificial, strained interpretation, why do I trust him with anything? So I have here, why would I accept any claim he might make when the New Testament author has demonstrated his willingness to advance a contrived, artificial, and fallacious interpretation of the scriptures? How does that encourage me to find him credible with respect to anything else he might say? If he's willing to be tendentious in his reading of the scriptures, why would I trust him not to be tendentious in any other fact claims or in any other interpretation of facts that he might offer? So my conclusion is any interpretation of what a New Testament author is doing that involves him in a contrived, artificial, and or fallacious reading of the text of the Hebrew scripture undermines and destroys that New Testament author's integrity and the integrity of his whole account regarding Jesus and the Gospels. At least, what I mean by destroy it is, at least I have no basis to trust it. He may be perfectly right on, but how would I know that, given what I've seen? Now, some are tempted to maintain that while his interpretive method is contrived, artificial, and fallacious, that's all right, because the New Testament author is simply engaging in exegesis that's culturally accepted by his contemporaries. And I think all too often in academic biblical studies these days, this is the direction they go. Well, he was just trying to convince the Jews of his day. And the Jews of his day had a funny way of looking at Scripture. And he's just using the funny way of looking at Scripture that they had. And so he can convince them using their methods, even though it is kind of contrived and artificial, but he's not writing to us, he's writing to them, and that would be convincing to them. In other words, he's using an ad hominem argument, you know what I mean by that? An argument that may be convincing to the person I'm trying to persuade, but it's not rationally or logically valid in and of itself. But I can manipulate you into believing what I want you to believe by arguing on terms that you find acceptable. But what if God doesn't find those terms acceptable? And what if an intelligent rational human being who's trying to deal with integrity doesn't find those arguments acceptable, then there is no plausibility, there is no integrity to the conclusion. So I say this does not solve the problem. Being a method widely accepted by his culture does not make what the New Testament author is doing acceptable. If it is fallacious, it's fallacious. It does not matter that his whole culture trades in fallacious arguments. Wide acceptance does not make it valid. For the New Testament author to have any credibility with you and with me, he must not advance fallacious arguments based on fallacious interpretations. What if I were to go to evangelical Christian culture, grew up in that culture, I know what they think, I know what they assume, I know how they use the Bible. What if I use the Bible with them to convince them of something I want them to be convinced of, all the time knowing I have long ago decided those methods don't work. Those methods are bunk. Those assumptions are wrong. Those perspectives are wrong. Those values are wrong. But I can use them against you. What would God think of me? What would the Apostle Paul think of me? That I'm peddling the gospel using crafty techniques. I'm tricking you into believing. The difference between Christianity and Islam is that it matters why you believe. It matters that you are actually persuaded by valid persuasive arguments to believe, and you voluntarily decide to accept the, the force of that argument and embrace it. It's not any means possible is okay. That's not Christianity, not the Christianity of the, 
apostles, not the faith of the apostles. This suggestion will have currency with people as it does in academic circles. This suggestion will have currency with people who view the Bible as just a human artifact. But for anyone who grants divine authority to the Bible and believes it to be inspired and inerrant, as I do, such a claim makes no sense. Ad hominem argument is something we might expect in the context of a fallible human discourse, but it is unacceptable in the context of inspired authoritative scripture, I think. In other words, we can expect biblical authors to have used fallacious arguments that were accepted by their contemporaries if the Bible is nothing other than a fallible human artifact. And most biblical scholars in academia, that's their perspective. It's just a product of history. God had nothing to do with it. But if the Bible is divinely inspired, authoritative revelation from God, then it would be completely incongruous to maintain that its authors employed inherently fallacious arguments. And then my last point, others are tempted to maintain that while his interpretive method is contrived, artificial, and fallacious, it is nonetheless not problematic because the New Testament author is divinely inspired. Due to its origin, what he is saying can be known to be true even though he grounds it in fallacious reasoning and interpretation. His arguments may be nonsense, but they're inspired and therefore authoritative nonsense. I read a book, and that's the conclusion that came to. Years ago, I read a book where his last chapter is he goes through different Jewish exegetical methods and tries to show, look, here's how the apostles, and that wasn't, frankly, wasn't all that convincing to start with, but he thought he had convinced us that he was just using the same interpretive methods that the rabbis of that time would use, that the apostles were. And then he gets to the last chapter and says, now, can we do that? Well, of course not. This is silly. <laughs> this is a silly way of exegeting the Bible, so we can't do that. But they can get away with it because they're inspired. I just find that incredible. If the spirit of truth is getting at me through inspired nonsense, I don't know what to do with that. How is he the spirit of truth? if he's inspiring nonsense to persuade me to believe. That makes no sense to me. So I argue that that's an absurd position. The very notion of inspired nonsense is absurd and perhaps blasphemous. Not only does the suggestion misunderstand the workings of God, but it also ignores the epistemological needs of mankind. I mean, God has given me a mind, and he expects me to use my mind the way human beings are expected to use our minds. So why would he bypass my mind with nonsense and yet inspired nonsense, to reach me instead of using the mind that he gave me and use it responsibly and with integrity that he expected me to use it. God never asks us to believe truly irrational, absurd things simply because he's telling us to believe it. Now, I want to emphasize truly irrational and absurd things. Does he ask us sometimes to do crazy things that seem crazy to us? Sure, yeah but they're only crazy from my limited perspective. I don't have the perspective of God on them. They're not really irrational. They're not really absurd. God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac appeared kind of absurd, appeared immoral, and it appeared irrational. But from the larger perspective of who God was and his relationship to Abraham, nothing irrational, absurd about it at all. It was a test. So contrary to popular conception, to believe totally irrational and absurd things because God allegedly tells us to believe them does not constitute what the Bible calls faith. That is a long-standing definition or concept of faith that began all the way back due to the Platonic influence on Christianity 
early, early, from the very beginnings of the church fathers. And I would argue it was always fallacious. It was never from the Bible. It was from Plato. It's invalid. It's inappropriate. And we need to get rid of it as fast as we can. But it's still with us in Christian culture, very much immersed in Christian culture today and secular culture today. Secularists are always accusing us of, well, you just accept that by faith. That is to say, you know it's absurd, ridiculous nonsense, and you think it's a virtue to believe it. Never have we been called to believe stuff that we think is absurd and irrational and ridiculous because somehow it's a virtue to do such a thing. Gullibility is not faith. Okay, I have five minutes for any questions you have. Yeah. Okay, great question. So the question was, if we go back to the original documents and grant them the kind of integrity and authority being inspired and inerrant that I have advocated, how can we know that our translations and our texts that we have that have survived through the centuries, the the millennia, how can we know that they have those same qualities, basically? Well, logically we can't because it's always the logical possibility that the text has been corrupted enough that no matter how inspired and inerrant it may have been originally, we just don't have that any longer. So logically that's possible. It becomes an empirical question then, how corrupt is the text? And I can't speak to the Hebrew scriptures, but having looked at the New Testament and the Greek New Testament and the texts of the Greek New Testament, they are amazingly well-preserved. You'll have someone like Bart Ehrman come along and say there's thousands of variations in the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Well, technically he's right. There are thousands of variations, but you know what he counts as a variation? If the Greek manuscript has that instead of This was the scribes abbreviated the word Christos, Christ. They abbreviated it with a capital key with a line over it. The line over it was saying, I'm tired. I don't want to write this word out. You know what I'm talking about. This is the guy that these scriptures are about. That's the Christ. Well, they call that a variation. But it means exactly the same thing in this manuscript as it does in this manuscript. Other variations come along, and you'll have one text that will say, Our Lord Jesus the Christ and another one will have Christ Jesus, our Lord. The phrase means exactly the same thing. Which of those is original? At that point, I don't really care, because whichever text, whichever manuscript I go with, the phrase means exactly the same thing. So I did a fairly detailed study of this in the book of Romans, and I decided that I can count on one hand the number of variations in the book of Romans that would even alter the meaning of the sentence. And even there, it alters the meaning of the sentence, but as interpreters, we always read sentences in the context of the paragraph. By the time you've put them back in the paragraph, it doesn't alter the meaning of the paragraph one whit. I know exactly what Paul was saying, no matter which manuscript you go with. And so by the time you're done, like 99.9%, I'm making that number up, but 99.9% of the variations that you have among the different texts, manuscripts, make no significant difference at all whatsoever. Now, I don't know what claims can be made about the Hebrew text in that regard because I haven't looked at that, but in the New Testament, it's very, very well preserved. Translation is a different matter, and that's a more serious question, I think, because I frankly think that we do have some translations that have been influenced by the theology of the translators in such a way that they just get it wrong. 
and their translation can be kind of tendentious sometimes, trying to steer you toward their doctrine or their theology or their perspective. So we have to be open to, unlike some Christians who, if it has a leather binding and gold on the edges, you can't mess with it, you know. No, that's not true. We need to be responsible enough that we hear people out if they can make a good case for the text needs to be a little different here or the translation needs to be a little different here. We need to be open to that argument. But we shouldn't be gullible either. There's a whole industry out there who preys on that and who tries to make all kinds of outrageous claims about how, well, really what was going on in the text is this, and they're making stuff up. They're just inventing that because they can get away with it. Did that answer? It has to do with when you're talking about looking at the Bible rationally. And so I'm curious, what does that look like? Because I can imagine there are aspects of the Bible I don't understand or are confusing. Is that because I've, my rationality has failed? Is it possible to understand the Bible completely using rational? Where if we're flawed humans, are we even capable of all the time understanding that rational argument? Are there points where we just have to take things on? Well, let me divide your question. Yeah, you can ask the question, is it possible in principle for us rational human beings to understand the Bible completely? I think the answer to that is absolutely. That's what it's for. So absolutely it's possible in principle. Is it possible in practice? It's a big, hard book, and I'm not going to live that long. So in practice, I'm still going to have unanswered questions and difficulties that I haven't solved and problems that I still have to wrestle with and I don't know the answer to. So yeah, in practice, it's difficult, but not because my rationality is failing me. It's because I haven't researched enough, I don't know enough, my horizon is too limited. There's all kinds of things that stand in the way, but it's not my rationality. Do you assume it's incorrect until you prove it rationally, or are you able to... Do I assume the Bible is incorrect until I... No, I ask... Okay, that's a great question. My working assumption is the Bible is infallible and inerrant until someone can show me why it's not. It's better to assume that for two reasons. One, I would argue that Jesus himself believed that the Bible was inerrant, John 10. I believe he thought the Bible was inerrant, and I think he knows what he's talking about. So if I'm going to call him Lord, and I'm going to serve him and let him be my teacher, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. So I, yes, I believe the Bible is inerrant because my teacher taught me that that's the right view of the scripture. Now, could Jesus be mistaken? Could he maybe not be the Messiah? Could he maybe not be worthy of being my Lord? Well, If the Bible ends up being full of errors and he didn't know that, I'm going to rethink whether he's even the Messiah. So rationally, I need to be prepared to jettison any of my beliefs if they don't hold up to scrutiny. But at a more practical level, the person who believes the Bible is inerrant is going to believe it more profoundly and deeply than the person who doesn't. And you see this if you read Bart Ehrman or anybody like that. Barn Ehrman makes some of the stupidest arguments I've ever seen. He argues like a fundamentalist of the worst kind who refuses to have any kind of subtlety about language and about how the way language works and so on. So he argues like a kind of narrow-minded fundamentalist minus the faith. (laughs) He just doesn't believe any of this is true. Well, I don't think we should be narrow-minded fundamentalists, but we should have faith. We should approach the Bible charitably. I know that what you're saying is right. I don't get how this is consistent. If you think there are errors in the Bible, you just chalk it up to error and leave it alone. You don't even think about it any longer. Ah, it's an error. If you don't think it's an error, you think harder, and you go deeper, and you think more subtly, and you finally come to realize, oh, that's what's going on here. 
And once you arrive at the answer, you go, the answer was there all along. I just didn't see it. But you're never going to see it if you're going to always be dismissing it as an error the first resistance you get to understanding it.